to give you a little bit of a background as to what's going on here so that way we can kind of grasp the magnitude of what's happening here. So we know that from the prophecies that we saw over the last couple of weeks, Amos and uh, um, Hosea and the things in the Psalms and in Isaiah, we know that what was coming down the pike was that God was going to judge Israel for their sin. And God was going to judge Judah for their sin. And in so doing, God lays out the plan. This is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to unfold. And as we saw last week, that God had the Assyrians come in and take Israel and the northern kingdom of Israel and then Syria captive. And by this time, the Assyrian Empire has just steamrolled the Middle East, okay? They're moving through like crazy. And at this point where we're at in the book of Isaiah, the book of 2 Kings, the book of Hosea, what's going on here is that the nations of the Middle East are now paying tribute to Assyria, and after some years, Egypt and Ethiopia finally said, you know, we've had enough. We're not going to bow our knee to Sennacherib anymore. And Hezekiah and Judah said, you know what, neither are we. So they um, make a pact with Egypt, okay, and they all break away even though God had sent Isaiah and said, look, gang, don't do this. Do not rely on Egypt. Rely on me. I'll take you through what's going to happen. Hezekiah didn't listen, okay? And what I want us to consider with this as we watch this unfold, life is full of hardships. Sometimes those hardships are our own making, right? We just make choices and decisions, and then we're left with a mess and trying to figure out how to deal with it. Sometimes they're not of our doing. They're the works of somebody else. Life is full of trials, and life is full of battles. Sometimes the battle we face is against our own flesh, right? That old man that just wants to just pull us away from the Lord. Sometimes the battles come from the world as they're seeking to pull us away from the Lord. And over all of that, you have our adversary, Satan, whose desire is to steal and kill and destroy and pull us away from the Lord and the great things that the Lord has for us. And when we look at this, we see Hezekiah made a choice. The trouble that they're in at this point, is because of what Hezekiah did. He did not listen to the Lord. Now, there were already outside problems that were coming in from Assyria, but he made it worse. But the Lord's still faithful. And we're going to see how our adversary, the devil, attacks us, hounds us. But above that, we're going to see how our God, our Father, Yahweh, is sovereign over all things, He's all-powerful, and no matter what happens, he's got it under control. And we're going to look at that. So, in chapter 36, 
what has happened now is they've broken away. Sennacherib has come into Judah and just hammered them and taken a lot of people into captivity. And now he has sent ambassadors to the walls of Jerusalem. And these ambassadors strike fear, discouragement, and compromise into the hearts of the people. And that's just the way our enemy, the devil, works, okay? When we are in hard times and we're in struggles and we're suffering, the enemy is always there to try to pull us away from the Lord. So in chapter 36, verse 1, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. He is moving like, like a steamroller. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, okay, these are ambassadors, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joash, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh, I was probably not saying that right, said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar, the temple, at the temple. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able to put on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I come, oh, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land to destroy it. So here they are. And this is, this is David and Goliath 2.0, okay? To give you an understanding, Sennacherib has sent an army to Jerusalem in excess of 180,000 soldiers. That's huge. To give you an idea of the size of Jerusalem, have most of you been to Devil's Lake? I would imagine so, right? Okay. And there's the Devil's Lake Loop Trail, right? That's 4.6 miles all the way around, okay? You can put, at Hezekiah's time, one and a half Jerusalems inside Devil's Lake Loop Trail. The wall that went around Jerusalem was only about two and a half miles around, okay? So picture, I mean, picture like, let's just say 200,000 people converging on Devil's Lake. What would that look like? Picture 200,000 
converging on a city that's a little bit more than half that size. This is Goliath and David, and there's no way there's victory. And so Sennacherib comes in and says, okay, look, you don't have a chance. You're going to trust Egypt? I'll tell you what. I'll give you 2,000 horses for war if you can find 2,000 guys to put on it. If you can't even do that, how can you stand against me and how can you trust in Egypt? And he's just hammering them, saying, you can't do this. You are dead. You have no hope. This is the way the enemy works with us. When we are suffering and we're going through trials and hardships, be they coming from outside sources or something of our own doing, our enemy, the devil, seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's right there to go, do you really think that God's going to get you through this? Do you really think that you're going to make it out of this? This is so much bigger than you. And you've screwed up so much because this is what Hezekiah did. He screwed up. And he knew it. And bam, he's hitting right there. And he's just pressing discouragement. And as he's hitting, he's just hitting him. It's like, you guys have no chance. And the enemy brings discouragement to us and tries to beat us down because they want us to give up. Satan wants us to be defeated. And so in verse 11, I'm sorry, um, yeah, 11. Then they go from discouragement, they add to that fear. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah with the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out, in a loud voice to the language of, in the language of Judah, hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver you. This city will not be given into the hand of, the, of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you will his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So they're already being discouraged and then comes the fear. They're speaking in Hebrew, not Aramaic. And so everybody on the wall is hearing everything that's being said. Get this, and this really hit home for me. Satan knows how to speak your language. Satan knows how to bring fear into your life. He knows how to discourage you. He knows how to say the right things to push your buttons. You know, and we see that in Scripture. Scripture. 
Even when Jesus was being tested by Satan, Jesus was, he had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. And at the end of that time, when he's at his weakest physically, that's when Satan comes in and boom, just, he, he, he's, he's saying, hey, look, since you're the son of God, turn the stones into bread. You're about to die. Jesus responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And then Satan says, well, okay, why don't you just jump off the top of the temple? And the Bible says that God's not going to let your foot be struck against a stone. You're not going to die and everybody's going to see who you are. Since you're the son of God, why don't you let people see? And again, Jesus responds with scripture. And it's like Satan's even twisting the word of God. And then the third time, Satan really digs in and he says, look, I'll tell you what. If you bow down and worship me, I'll give you everything. You want to be the king? I'll give you the kingdoms. You just worship me. No cross, no pain, no suffering, no taking the garbage that this world has done upon yourself. You can have it all and no pain. He is so crafty. He knows how to speak our language to instill fear and to instill a desire for compromise. He's just said, you guys are going to be eating your own dung and drinking your own urine. I'll tell you what, you just come out to me, make peace with me, let's have a compromise here. You can have your food, you can have your crops, you can have what you need. You'll live in peace, it'll be good. And then I'll come and take you away later on and I'll take you to a place just as good as yours, okay? Let's, let's compromise here. That's exactly what Satan wants to do in our lives. He says, I'll give you something just as good. I'll give you something better. I'll make it easier on you. And that is so tempting for us. I know it is for me. It's like when I'm suffering and I'm hurting and I'm going through garbage, I want out. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? I don't want to be in this situation. Goliath is here. The Assyrians are here. It's bad. Oh, and I did it myself. I put myself in this situation. And the enemy is right there. And I want an out. So it's like, well, hey, let's compromise. That's what Satan did with Jesus. Let's make a compromise. You save the world. You worship me. We're good. How's that? When Hezekiah heard this, Let's take a look. Turn over to chapter 37. Actually, uh, let's, let's back up and just go to uh, verse 18 uh, of 36. They go on to say, hey, don't let Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. And get this, has any of the gods of the nations delivered this land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Seraphim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hands? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered the lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Basically, Sennacherib saying, look, let's deal with facts here. There is not a nation out there or a God out there who's been able to stand against me and your God can't help you either. 
Okay, so let's just cut to the chase, surrender. Give up, give in. It'll make it easier on you. Chapter 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. Best decision he could make. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And basically, he's like, okay, Isaiah, this is what's going down. And we don't have a chance What's God got to say? What does God want us to do? We need him. And God told Isaiah, let them know that I'm going to stir up a rumor and I'm going to pull Sennacherib out of here, okay? And so Isaiah told Hezekiah, and sure enough, the rumor came to Sennacherib, hey, this is what's going on. Egypt and Cush, they're coming after you. So he backed off of Jerusalem and went to go face them. And so there's a, not a reprieve, but there's a break in the action. And they're catching their breath. But true to form, the enemy doesn't stop there. The enemy comes back for round two. I wish it were the case that when we stand up against Satan and we resist his accusations and his fiery darts and all the junk that he hurls at us that after one round he goes okay all right I'm done I'm good okay you got me beat he doesn't do that he didn't do that with Jesus round one round two round three let's go for a round four at the cross he's going to go for round five at the end of the millennium that's going to be when you know the match is over it's done and over with he doesn't give up. Sennacherib doesn't back off, and he comes around for round two. He's gone away, but now he's got some well over 180,000. We know that. Soldiers camped outside Jerusalem, and he sends a letter down in verse 14 to Hezekiah. And the letter's basically saying, look, let's just get this over with. Surrender. If you don't, I'm going to tear you apart. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord. He's got it. And spread the letter before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, the, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words the Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste uh, all the nations and their lands. So he's saying, yeah, this is the truth. They have just steamrolled everybody and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God, okay? And so God sends Isaiah to Hezekiah. And this is so key for us. When we are in trials and tribulations and heartache and in the midst of battles, the best place for us to be is before the Lord. 
go to him. And we'll see why in, in a minute. But we don't want to trust in men like Hezekiah trusting in Egypt. We don't want to trust in man. Man's fallible. We don't want to trust in ourselves. We want to trust in the Lord alone. And so God sends Isaiah to Hezekiah and says, okay, I am going to pull him out by hooks and bring him back into his own land. I'm going to take him out of here. And look at what God says. And he's speaking to Sennacherib here. This is in verse 26. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? He's saying to Sennacherib, I did this. I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass. Sennacherib, you think you're calling the shots. You're not. I am. That you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants shorn of strength are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops blighted before it is grown. And he says this to Sennacherib, I know you're sitting down. I know you're going out and coming in. I know everything you do. And I know you're raging against me. And because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. That night, it says a little further on, God sent an angel into the Assyrian camp and wiped out 180,000 soldiers. That's scary. And the next morning, the inhabitants of Judah wake up and they're like, oh, wow. Well, it looks like God took care of that one. Sennacherib runs home with his tail between his legs. And when he gets home, he goes into the house of his God. And his two sons come and assassinate him. And a third son becomes king in his place. God tells this king, you think you're calling the shots. You're not. I was the one using you to discipline my people. You are wanting to destroy them. You're not humble before me. You're reviling me. I'm taking you out. I am judging you for your sin. And people, you know, I, I hear growing up in the church, people saying, you know, how God... I mean, how Satan just had so much power, so how much control over their lives and such. Satan's doing this, Satan's doing that. Satan can do nothing that our Heavenly Father does not allow. And when God allows those things, yes, God allowed Sennacherib to come down on Judah, but it was to correct them and discipline them, to bring them home to him to get them on the right track again because he loved them. Jesus allowed Satan to sift Peter like wheat. Why? Because Jesus was mean? No. Jesus had an incredible plan for Peter's life. But Peter had some issues, right? I love Peter because he's a lot like me. He says the wrong thing at the wrong time. He thinks he's better than he is. He's not quite getting the picture. And I can relate to that. You know, I can trust God, step out of the boat, and then sink. Hey, that's me all over, okay? 
God had to work in Peter's life, and he allowed Satan to sift him, to tear him apart, to break him down, so that Jesus could build him up into a pillar of the body of Christ. Anytime Jesus tears down, we saw this last week in Hosea, when Jesus tears down, it's to build up. When Jesus wounds, it's to heal. It's always for our good. He's using Sennacherib. Sennacherib got too big for his britches. And God removes him out of the picture. So what happens later is after this scene, okay, and, and I want us to shift here because when we are in hard times, generally that's the time we press into the Lord, right? And when we're in comfortable times, we tend to stray away from the Lord. Hezekiah was getting proud. He got sick and he was going to die. And God sent Isaiah and said, okay, get your house in order. You're going to die. It's time to come home with me. And Hezekiah was broken hearted. He's weeping and he turns his face to the wall. He's lying in bed and it's like, please give me more time. And God gave him 15 more years. But within the prosperity and the blessings that came within that 15 years, he became self-centered. And after God healed him, the Babylonians sent envoys to give him a gift and say, hey, we heard about you being sick and healed. We're really glad that you're doing well. Okay, and so Hezekiah says, hey, and, and understand Babylon is not a superpower right now. Assyria is, but Babylon's growing, okay? And so Hezekiah's like, hey, let me show you what we got. Let me show you what, what uh, things we have in, in, in Judah. And he shows all the treasures and storehouses. And God sends Isaiah to him and says, what did you show them? Oh, I showed them everything. I showed him how great a land we are. We got it good. And God says through Hosea, you have shown them everything we have. They are going to come against you and they're going to take you captive. And you know what Hezekiah's response was? He says, well, and God said, it's not going to be in your lifetime. It's going to be after you die, Hezekiah. Hezekiah's response is, well, hey, that's great. At least it's not happening in my day. Here's a guy who went from so, being so concerned for the people of God and for the nation that he's calling for revival and rebuilding the temple and calling the people of Israel to come and move down to Judah so they can serve and follow God. And he's seeking God and God's blessing and prospering. And he's concerned about the Lord and concerned about God's people. And when it's all said and done, after he's lived a cush life, it's all about him. Okay, well, you know, if they go down, hey, at least it's not my time. That's messed up. It's amazing, really, having the trials and tribulations, those are a blessing. They're not fun, but boy, they, if, if we do what we need to do like Hezekiah, they'll keep us before the Lord. And we won't so easily stray. But with that message, God says, look, I'm going to comfort you. Turn over to verse 25 of chapter 40. Actually, let me go back. 
I'm lost. Yeah, okay, 25 verse 40, okay. So he's saying, all right, you're going to be judged. It's going to happen down the road. Now understand, when Isaiah makes this prophecy, it's going to be about 100 years before Babylon invades Judah, okay? They're not even a superpower yet. And God says, I want you to be comforted. How can we be comforted when we know that there's invasion coming, when there's more hardship, more trials and everything? Look what God says about himself. Verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Look at the stars. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because of his strong, he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you ever been in the situation where you're going through the ringer, and you're going, God doesn't see where I'm going through? And you're crying out and it's like, God, don't you see? Don't you hear? Don't you care? It's like when the disciples were in the boat and the storm is raging. And what's Jesus doing in the midst of the storm? He is out cold. He is sound asleep. And they go and they wake him up and it's like, don't you care, care that we're dying? Hey, Jesus, don't you have a clue what's going on in our lives right now? You're asleep and we're getting ready to die. And they're freaking out. And Jesus, you know, I just imagine opening his eyes and going, okay, all right. And he pushes himself up. He stands up and he says to the wind and the waves, cease, be still. And it was over. And the disciples are going, who is this guy that even the winds and the waves obey him? Well, he's the guy you've been following and like raising the dead people and, you know, doing miracles and the son of God. But, you know, sometimes we're slow on the uptake. I, for one, am one of them. And so, you know, we, we have that tendency to go, God, don't you care? Yes, I do care. I do see what's going on. And just as Jesus was in control of the situation, they were never going to sink because Jesus was a, he was there. He knew exactly, but it was no big deal. He was going to get them to the other side. And God sees what you're going through. I wish we could cry out to God and say, God, fix this now. And God says, okay, there it is. It's done. He doesn't. And one thing I've learned is when we're in the hard things in life, God is working on me, purifying me, because he wants me to be conformed into the image of Jesus and to trust him and to believe in him and to hope in him and rely on him. And I've got a long way to go. But the only way I can learn to trust him is to be in situations where I need to trust him. I wish there was another way. You know what I'm saying? I can trust you without having to trust you. That'd be great. But no, I got to be in a situation to trust. And so God says, I know what's going on. And listen what he says. Have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall faint, fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That will happen if we wait on the Lord. God is saying, look, guys, I do see what you're going through. I do see what's happening. I do understand. I created everything. I control everything. I know every star by name. I don't let one disappear. I have it all under control. And I want you to know that if you wait on me, I'll take care of it. I will give you strength. I will give you hope. I will give you peace. You will soar with the eagles. You know, and, and I, I think I might have mentioned this a few weeks ago. Jennifer and I were out at Devil's Lake and we're up on the bluffs. And they weren't eagles. They were turkey vultures. But they're just soaring. They're just soaring. They're not flapping their wings. They're just riding the current, riding the wind. Effortlessly. You know, how much effort? They're just going like this. Turn the wings a little bit, you know. They're just going all sorts of places, you know. And when we let the Holy Spirit carry us, rather than fighting and flapping our wings like a chicken, you know, not getting off the ground, just spreading our wings and letting the Spirit carry us, He will see us through. It may be hard. You know, Jesus knew what it was like to go through hard stuff. But you know what? God's faithful. He says, wait on me and you will soar. You will run and not be weary. You will walk and you will not faint. So he's encouraging there. And then in verse 41, if you go down, the famous passage, 41.10, God says, fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then in verse 13, he says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who says to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. He has just said, my hand puts the stars in place. Elsewhere, he says, I measure the universe with the span of my hand. And here he says, I hold you with my hand. If God has you in his grip, you're in the best place to be. Don't fear. And when I look at this passage, it makes me think, you know, and some of you have heard me say, tell this story, but when our fourth child, Abby, was born, she was stillborn. She was dead. There was nothing that we could do. Jennifer and I are praying and we're crying out to the Lord. And from the bed to the little teeny bassinet where they're going to try to do CPR and resuscitate her and bring her back, as they're carrying her over, she comes back to life. 
they had not had a heartbeat on her for eight minutes. And the nurse was like, she's breathing, she's breathing. And I can't remember if it was one of the nurses or the doctor, I think it was the doctor saying, keep praying, it's working. You know, this is the doctor, okay? And keep praying, you know? And, and God brought her back, but she was messed up. Signs of cerebral palsy, uh, brain damage, kidney damage, liver damage, heart damage. It was screwed up. And when they took her to the ICU, God spoke to me and he gave me a verse, okay? Luke 850. And I'm like, I'm in the hospital, like 850. I don't know what Luke 850 is. So I grabbed my Bible and I opened up to Luke 850. And it's when Jairus comes to Jesus. And he's absolutely broken because his little girl, his 12-year-old baby girl, is dead. And Jesus says to him, do not fear. Believe me. That's what God's saying here. Don't be afraid. You trust me. I've got you. And where Abby was concerned, about every two hours, the nurses would come down and God was healing those damaged areas of her body and making her whole. Three days later, they're like, yeah, I guess you guys can go home. An unbelieving pediatrician that we had had for a few years was saying, we didn't know until later, and he ended up becoming a Christian, but he was saying, they know the man upstairs. The living God was moving. Don't be afraid. Trust me now. It doesn't always end that way. I know that. Our own family have our own struggles and stuff. You know, we've got three legally blind children. We've cried out to the Lord, praying for healing for our kids. What do you do with that? You rose one from the dead. You can handle eyesight, right? You can fix this. I know it because you fixed a brain, you fixed a heart, you fixed it. You know, I know you can do this but he hasn't, then what? And that's where the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians, where he's crying out because he's got the thorn in the flesh, a physical ailment in all probability, a messenger of Satan that God has allowed to keep Paul humble. And he cries out to the Lord. And he's like, please take this away from me. And the response that God gives Paul is this. In your uh, he says, in weakness, my strength is perfected. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul, in your weakness, you will be running on my strength and people will see me in your life. And I am going to give you the grace to handle what's in your life. Sometimes God removes the problem, like with my, my daughter, but sometimes he gives us the grace to live through the trial or the battle and see us through to the end, okay? The thing is, he's faithful, and he's driving this home to these people. He is faithful to take care of them. He says, don't be afraid. Well, how do I know? How do I know that you're in control? Well, let's go to court. 
Let's take the gods that Sennacherib has disgraced. Let's take Sennacherib's gods. Let's go to court and let's see who the real God is. Let's see who has everything under control. Chapter 41, verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Going, if I can get my pages to split here. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good, do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And then in chapter 42, he begins to talk about Jesus coming. And we see from here on out, Jesus will be talked about so much. Okay? But he's saying, look, you want to know who really knows what's going on and who's in control? Hey, let's go back. Who has declared things in the past and made them come into fruition now. Who did it? I did it. The other gods can't do that. Oh, by the way, who is able to tell you the things that are to come and make them happen? Nobody else is able to. It's just me. This is a big issue. We need to understand this is God's word spoken to humanity. And the bulk of this scripture the bulk of the word of god is prophetic okay religions don't delve into prophecy because their gods cannot prophesy they are false gods now you say that to the world and people are going to get uppity but we can we can go to the same court case that god brought forth okay let's throw down who can tell the things that are to come and make them happen there's nobody else Nobody else. If you go over to chapter 44, verse 28, okay, this is a crazy thing. All right, so understand, when God's saying that Babylon is going to subdue Judah, that's going to be about 100 years in the future. Chapter 45, or 44, I'm sorry, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, that's God, okay, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, here is God using a pagan king to accomplish his will. And he shall fulfill all my purpose. Who's calling the shot? Cyrus? No. Cyrus's gods? No. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Saint of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. Go down to verse 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by name. I name you, though you do not know me. Not only did Cyrus not know him, Cyrus didn't exist. The Medo-Persian Empire that would overthrow Babylon wasn't even stirring, okay? And Cyrus isn't going to show up for 150 years. 
He's calling a man who does not exist by name, saying, you're my servant, and this is what you're going to do. It's believed that when David was serving under Cyrus, that he brought the book of Isaiah before Cyrus and said, hey, buddy, God's got a word for you. And Cyrus sent Israel back home to rebuild the temple. When you look in Scripture, Jesus, Ezekiel, John, Paul prophesied, we know what is coming. We know a third temple will be built and it will be desecrated by the Antichrist. Why? Because Jesus said so. You can't desecrate a temple that doesn't exist. You can't have a temple in a country that doesn't exist. People believe that Israel would never become a nation again. 1948, Israel's a nation again. Preparations are being made to rebuild the third temple. By October, they may be offering the first sacrifice of the red heifer to anoint the priests and prepare them for ministry in the temple. When God says he's going to do stuff, he means it. Can we trust him? Yes. We're not talking about religion here. We're talking about a person who is almighty, all-powerful, and who happens to be, if you're a believer in his son, Jesus Christ, he also happens to be your papa. And he loves you. And if he holds the universe in his hand and he holds you in his hand, there's no stopping what he wants to do in your life. He's got you. So I want you to take this. God is in control. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever's going on in this world, God is in control. Number one. Number two, wait on him. To wait doesn't just mean sitting around going, okay, you know, all right, God, I'll just kind of do my thing and whatever. It means we wait in pursuit of him. We seek him, we look to him, we follow him, we walk with him, and we let him call the shots. We wait upon him to move. Thirdly, don't be afraid, okay? Don't be afraid. We want things now. God has a bigger plan, a bigger picture. We see that here. Fourthly, God's timing, okay? He's working in us. He's working in other people. This is a big thing like where family stuff is concerned about. When we have loved ones that aren't walking with the Lord or they're prodigals or they're suffering and things like that, we want God to fix it now. But in the midst of it, God may be working on us God also is working on them. And then God is also working in circumstances and situations. He's got a much bigger picture than our little world. But he still cares about our little world. His grace is sufficient. And your papa holds you in the palm of his hand. Jesus said, no one can snatch you out of my father's hand. I don't know what you might be going through, but God does. And he's there, and it may not seem like he's moving or anything like that, but he is. And the people you love, he loves more. The things you're going through, he cares about you. And his ultimate aim is for your best. It's like our kids as good parents, our ultimate aim is for their best, right? 
but they don't see that a lot of times and they don't understand. We don't understand what Papa's doing too a lot of times. But it's always for our good. You are a child of the one who controls all things. Rest in him. Hold to him. Even if Goliath is standing at the gates, God can take him out. Even if an army of over 180,000 is there, God doesn't even have to take them out. He just sends one of his angels. Hey, go knock out those guys. He's got it covered. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning. Whatever they may be facing or may be coming down the pike, things that we don't even know, may we rest in you. You are the one who calls the end from the beginning. You are the one who calls kings by name. Not just Cyrus, but Lord, you called Nebuchadnezzar, you called Josiah by name before they ever existed. Calling them your servants. Fulfilling your plans through them. Fulfilling your plans through nations who were not following you. What a great place to be, to be in the palm of your hand. Oh, Papa, encourage us, build us up. And may we not be afraid to speak the truth that there is no God but you and your batting record of declaring of what will happen and making it happen to date is a thousand. And you will never allow your word to not be fulfilled. Thank you for loving us and giving us your son to die for our sins and to make us your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.